Yes. Nicodemus. Let's go to John chapter 3. We'll be looking there in just a moment. The famous, probably the most familiar words, some of the most familiar words in the Gospel of John, you must be born again. Maybe the only more familiar words are the ones that were just referred to in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But you must be born again, I think, rank among the most familiar words of this gospel. And that is part of our problem, the Pledge of Allegiance effect. Or maybe it'd be better in this setting to call it the Lord's Prayer effect. I was very, very aware of the Lord's Prayer effect in India, particularly in Vizag, Master's College of Theology, and in the church services there. It is customary for them in their college chapels and other formal kinds of occasions to recite the Lord's Prayer. And yet, it seems to me, and I'm not saying this to be critical of them, it just seems to me as an observer, they go through it rather fast. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kind of fast, but also, I just wonder, when we recite the Lord's Prayer, as we recite the Pledge of Allegiance, do we really hear what we're saying? And I think that has happened also for a lot of people, a lot of church people, with the words, you must be born again. I have two main concerns this morning as we turn to this very famous and very well-known passage. One of them is that for us who have heard these words over and over again, have we really heard them? Do we really understand what Jesus is saying to us? Or maybe... Have they become trite? Have they kind of, for some of you who grew up in the church, they're, they're kind of for children, for Sunday school, the ABCs of the gospel. So my first concern is that these words are over-familiar. But I have a flip concern as well. When I was younger, when I was growing up in the church, it felt to me like this drum was beat on all the time. You must be born again. You heard it a lot. My my sense is, without any kind of scientific polling, is that we may not be saying that all that much anymore. And so I wonder, my second concern, especially for newer people in the church, didn't grow up in the church, and for our younger set, these words may not be so familiar because they're not being repeated as often. I know for myself and for many in my particular situation growing up in the church, they did start to become kind of overly, we've heard this, we've heard this, this is ABCs, and we want to move on, we want to get on to the deeper and richer truths of the gospel. But this also may mean that we are not communicating something so crucial, something so essential, something so central. These are, after all, Jesus' words. They aren't just out of some handbook of basics of Christianity. These are his very words. And that alone should give us caution not to treat them as something trite or worn out. But notice, as we begin to think through what Jesus is saying here, notice that he says you must this is an imperative. You have to. This is not something optional. You have to be born. You have to be born again. You have to be born a second time. Of course, you were born one time. You wouldn't be here. But Jesus is saying that birth is not enough. And I want you to see as we begin to look at the text, it's not only important what Jesus says, but who he says it to. Because the one he says it to is assuming by his birth, he is one of God's chosen people. He's a Jew. He's a member of the covenant people of God. His natural, physical birth qualifies him already for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you must, you must, you have to be born a second time or you cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Believing Christian and biblical teaching is not enough. Practicing Christian and biblical principles is not enough. You have to be born. And you have to be born a second time. If you've got your Bible open, let's look at this now and read through it. Verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's hearing these words very clearly. Let's be sure we hear them. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher? Just notice that. Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. First of all here, notice Jesus' keen insight into hearts. A very keen perception of Nicodemus and what his real need is. If you look at verse 1, the very first word in our English Bibles, now, that is a word that signifies continuation. We've got a chapter break right here, chapter 3, and all of our habits of reading tell us new chapter. That chapter break wasn't put there by the, the apostle, it was put there later, as most of you already know, and sometimes those chapter breaks cause us to miss the connection between the previous chapter. If you'll just look at the end of chapter 2, you can see the connection that's being made here. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem at a Passover. It says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And undoubtedly, Nicodemus would have been seeing or at least hearing about this. Nicodemus would be living in Jerusalem. He's a member of the council. He's a ruler. He would be there. He would be at least aware of this. But it goes on to say in verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about human beings for he himself knew what was in human beings. Now, there was this man, and if you look carefully, well, you can't see it in English really, but in verse two of chapter three, it actually says, and this man came to him. Our Bible is translated Jesus. The Greek just simply says, Jesus was not entrusting himself to to people because he knew what was in people. Now there was a man who came to him. John is going to now highlight Jesus' incredible insight into people. His incredible, razor-sharp realization and understanding of the real need. In fact, we're going to see as we work through the next several chapters, there's a whole series of people here that illustrate what is said at the end of chapter 2. We've got Nicodemus, then we've got in chapter 4, the woman at the well, chapter 4 as well, the Gentile official whose son was ill, and then in chapter 5, the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. All of them, people Jesus zeroes right in on the heart need despite what they're saying, despite how they're coming to him, what they're wanting to focus on or talk about, Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. John, I think, this is one of the fascinating things and one of the things that I love when I'm studying. 
you just begin to realize, and I hadn't really thought that much about it before, but, but it would appear to me at least that John was very impressed with this because he saw it again and again. And he makes note of it at the end of chapter 2, and then he begins to illustrate it for us several times to follow. And so Nicodemus becomes this first case in point of Jesus' keen insight into people. Now, who was this Nicodemus? This is very important. I've already said it. It's not just what Jesus says that is so striking here. It's who he says it to. And in a way, Nicodemus becomes a kind of quintessential example of the kind of person that most needs to hear this. We all need to hear it. Every person needs to hear it. But when we see who Jesus says it to, it makes it all the more striking and all the more impressive. You must be born again. And he says it to one of the most highly religious people in all of the land of Israel. Who was Nicodemus? We've already mentioned, of course, he's a Jew. He's a member of the covenant people. Many Jews, most Jews, especially those who were seeking to practice the law of God in any way, seeking to in some way honor their faith and live at least according to the traditions of their elders, would have made the assumption that they are kingdom citizens and that when the kingdom arrives, when Messiah comes and establishes his reign, we're in. The promises and the covenants are ours. These words are addressed to a person assuming they belong to the covenant people of God. For us who are church people, these words are addressed to us. Well, I'm a church person. In fact, I'm not just a church person. I'm a Christian church person. You too. Hear these words. You must be born again. Well, he's identified in verse 1 as a Pharisee. That's a little bit of a problem for us because Pharisee to us is a pejorative term. It's an insult. We don't call anybody a Pharisee to praise them. <laughs> but in the, in, in, the, in the time, in the period when Jesus is speaking these words, even when John is writing these words, you would have understood Pharisees, whether you particularly liked every Pharisee you knew or not. You've got to try to, to, to get out of your mind the, 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 the innuendo of Pharisee that you're kind of this hard-nosed, legalistic, judgmental, condemning kind of person. You've got to kind of block that out and understand that for the most part, they're highly respected. Even if you wouldn't yourself want to be a Pharisee, you would recognize these are the really devoted, devout committed ones. You know, just, just to use an illustration, I'm not saying that this is pharisaical, I'm just using it as an illustration. You know someone who doesn't believe in having a Christmas tree. You can respect that without necessarily believing you have to live that way. Or someone who says, I'm not going to own a television. Out of my commitment to Christ, I don't want to waste my time watching television. I won't even own one and have one in the house. You can respect that highly. So Pharisees were respected people. But notice, he's not just a Pharisee. He is a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the whole country. I'm just, for the sake of illustration, going to call him senator today. Just to kind of give us a, a more immediate connection with who this guy is. Okay? It's not an exact parallel, but it gives us the idea. And then in verse 9, Jesus identifies him, as I highlighted while reading, as the teacher of Israel. As far as we know, that's not an official position that one person occupied, but he's, he's just highlighting, are you the, the professor of theology? Are you the renowned PhD of the seminary? Are you the esteemed expert in the law of Moses and the traditions of the rabbis? This is the most reverend archbishop, doctor, senator. <laughs> All right? If you hear right reverend, that means he's a bishop in a church, okay? If you hear most reverend, that means he's an archbishop. That's who Nicodemus is. And... Everything I sense about Nicodemus, I don't think we have to 
to, to view him harshly. Some do. Some commentaries view him fairly harshly. I'm not convinced of that personally. He appears three times in this gospel. The second time he appears, he is actually in the midst of a council or Sanhedrin meeting, speaking up in defense of Jesus, kind of, kind of, kind of quietly in a, in a way or, or obliquely. Does our man, does, does our law condemn someone without a fair trial is basically how we would say it. And they just shut him down. Like, are you a Galilean or something? And then later on at his burial, at great cost to himself, if you read about all he provided for the burial, that would have been thousands of our dollars spent on Jesus' burial. And here he comes to Jesus. I mean, others just... Others of the rulers of, uh, wanted nothing to do with him. They just condemned him outright. He at least comes. He, he appears to me, as I read this account, as a seeker on some level. He's trying to, to understand who Jesus is. He has some level of interest. And yet, he is this highly esteemed man in the nation. Highly esteemed, a Pharisee. Pharisee, I would take to be true believer. And he comes seeking on some level to understand more who this unique and uh, attention-getting young rabbi really is. He's doing these miracles. God must be with him in some way. Who is he? Is he claiming to be Messiah? What What is this? Who is he? And yet Jesus, to this very man, true believer, devout keeper of the law, risen to the highest levels in his society, recognized as a teacher of the nation, an expert in God's truth. To this man, Jesus says, you have to be born a second time. That's why it's so crucial that we understand not only what Jesus says here, but who he's saying it too. We're told in verse 2 that Nicodemus came at night. He may have come simply for some privacy. During the day, there would be crowds. Jesus would probably be out in public. Maybe he just wanted some quiet, some aloneness, some time to really ask some more pressing questions. It may also have been out of fear that he came at night. We can't really know for sure what the motivation was because we're not told, but As we go on in the Gospel of John, we'll see several references. I'll just show them to you on the screen here of fear. Fear generated from the very council that this man belonged to. Chapter 9, verse 22, they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. You get excommunicated for being friendly or confessing, professing faith in this Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 42, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, Joseph's own party, let alone the council. I'm sorry, Nicodemus' own council party. John chapter 19, verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews possible. We don't know if this fear was really that strong so early in the ministry of Jesus, but it's very possible. Here is a recognized leader. Maybe he just didn't want to be seen meeting with Jesus, and so he meets with him at night. Whatever the reasons he came at night, as I say, I don't think we have to judge him harshly. Appears to me he's looking for some answers. He sees the hand of God. He appears to be through this gospel, throughout this gospel, a sincere and spiritually sensitive man. And so, verse 2, he says to Jesus, Rabbi, he's willing to recognize, perhaps it was just a social courtesy, but he's at least giving him the courtesy. Jesus was not recognized officially, he hadn't been through any official rabbinical training. But he's willing to call him rabbi. We, and he's willing to say, you, you, what you're doing clearly indicates that you are 
You're connected with God. God is at work here. It seems like he's leading to the question, or the implied question here is, who really are you? I want to know more. And it's at this point that Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter with him. We, we're just given a, a summary. We don't know what the whole conversation looked like. I, I would assume there were some normal social courtesies at the beginning of the conversation. But we can say this clearly. As soon as the conversation turns to the real matter at hand, as soon as it gets to the serious spiritual issues that are on the heart and mind of Nicodemus, Jesus doesn't even concern himself with what Nicodemus wants to ask him. He drives immediately to the heart of Nicodemus's real need. So Nicodemus, courteous, expresses what appears to be a fairly sincere acknowledgement of God being at work in his life, and Jesus looks right back at him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, I solemnly affirm, I solemnly declare, this is serious what you need to hear here, Nicodemus. Unless... One is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. And this must have felt a little bit like a slap. <laughs> you know, I can imagine the impulse in the heart of a lot of people to want to say, Do you know who I am? <laughs> I mean, we don't know his age. I'm just going to describe Nicodemus as about like me, my age, roughly, okay? And he has risen to the highest levels in his society. I have not, personally, but he's, 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 he's an expert in the law of God. He's been to seminary, so to speak, as I have, and he's spent a lifetime teaching the Word of God, as I have. And Jesus is looking at Scott in the eye and saying, Scott, you must be born again, or you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, let's pause for a moment and just let this sink in. Because Jesus is speaking to every one of us in this room. If he's speaking to one so eminently qualified for the kingdom of God according to normal Jewish expectation then he's speaking to everybody. And we who are the most eminently qualified externally by our Christianity, these words are spoken to as well. And please, please, I urge you, do not hear this as you must be born again or you will not go to heaven when you die. Do not hear it that way. That is not what he said. He said, you must be born again or you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. We're talking about a kingdom here. And that is crucial. Jesus calls people to a kingdom and a kingdom is where you have a king ruling over your life. A kingdom is where you have recognized and acknowledged that someone has the right to reign over you. And that starts now. That doesn't start when you die. That isn't about your destiny. That's about now. It's about who you are now and where you are today. So the real question you're going to be asking yourself is two things. Have I been born again? Am I in the kingdom of God? Have I surrendered myself to this king? Have I bowed the knee? Have I confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord? 
That's what he's talking about here. The kingdom of God, when you read about the kingdom of God in the Gospels, understand this is the messianic kingdom. This is when the Messiah comes. This is when the king God has appointed and anointed comes and establishes his reign over this world. And he says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see that. Meaning, he's not going to even be unseen when it arrives. And then he says later, cannot enter it. The two are probably virtually synonymous, but there's that slight difference of seeing it. When Messiah comes, you're going to see and really see. You're going to have to be born again to see. You're also going to have to be born again to get in. It's what it requires. Token Christianity does not even come close to being the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God means people have become subjects of the king of kings. And let me just emphasize with all of my power that this is a kingdom where you love the king. It's not that you've been beaten into submission. It's not that you have to do certain religious things to somehow be good enough. This is a kingdom where you love the king. You embrace his kingdom and his rule. You delight that he is your Lord and master. You love and worship and serve him. That's what it means to enter the kingdom of God. Not to go to heaven when you die. Not to be a religious person on earth today. Not to try to be a devout Christian so that somehow you will be meriting God's approval when you meet him. But to love and delight and to worship and to serve this king who rules over your life. And so we have to be born a second time. That's the whole message here. Jesus says it three times. Verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, you must be born again. Now it's clear, isn't it? It's clear here that Nicodemus doesn't, isn't understanding this. Now, Nicodemus isn't stupid. And he's not a dunderhead. And I don't think he's trying to be, you know, uh, he's trying to be obnoxious or anything. When he says, how can somebody go back into mom's womb and be born over again? I don't think he's being simplistic and overly literal and dumb. He's just expressing the fact that I don't understand you, Jesus. What are you talking about? Obviously, this doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. What do you mean? That's his point. Verses 5 and 6 are the heart and the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here. So we're going to spend some time here with these two verses and look at them carefully. We're actually going to start with verse 6 because it's the simpler. Verse 6 is saying this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's saying there's two kinds of birth. There's physical birth and then there is spiritual birth. That's the point. That makes it simple, pretty clear. There's two kinds of birth. Obviously, if I'm talking to you, you've undergone the first one. You need to undergo the second one. It's a spiritual birth. The word translated again here in this passage, when it says you must be born again, can also mean from above. A lot of you know that. Some of you with your study Bibles out are looking at that and wondering, well, wait a minute, Scott. This must mean, this means born from above, not born again. Actually, it means born again. Nicodemus' reaction to this, like, how can I go back into mom's womb here? This, what, what, what do you mean? I don't get you. Clearly, he's understanding a second birth, another birth, born over again. 
but it can also mean born from above. And what's fascinating about the Gospel of John, we've said this before, but I want to make sure we begin to lock this down in our knowledge of and our reading of the, the, the Gospel of John. Actually, you can see this in his letters and in the book of Revelation also. John is a master of intentional double meaning. He does it on purpose. At first, you wonder. You get into a passage, you start studying it, you think, well, it could be an A, but it could mean B. Let's see. Well, there's a lot of good reasons for A. There's some, a lot of good reasons for B. Well, which one has more reasons? Hmm, it's about even. How do you decide? And, all, and, then, and then you're studying along, and you see it again, and you see it again later, and then you see it again over here. You begin to say, this is interesting. John keeps doing this. He keeps leaving us here with, there's ample reason to take it as A and ample reason to take it as B. It begins to look like he's doing this on purpose. And in the context, clearly, we're talking about being born of the Spirit. And so born again, born from above, John probably intends for us to think both as we read this. Now, verse 5 is where the challenge comes. And once we penetrate verse 5, I think we'll really begin to see and get the whole point here. Verse 5, Jesus says, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Bingo. First thing that enters your mind is what? Baptism. It's got to be. If that didn't enter your mind, wake up. <laughs> That's what everybody thinks. And they get nervous and they go, oh no. You know, if you're, if you're a Baptist, you're going to get nervous when you read this verse. You're gonna... Is he talking about baptismal regeneration or something? The problem with understanding that Jesus is talking about baptism here is that, guess what? Christian baptism doesn't exist yet. This is Nicodemus. He's a Jew. Our baptism could not be the meaning because that would not mean anything to Nicodemus. There's no caveat here, no little parentheses that says, hang around, you'll understand this after Pentecost. You say, well, wait a minute. Okay, what are, are there any other baptisms? Yes, there was a baptism of John. Maybe he's saying, Nicodemus, you need to go get baptized by John. Well, he could have been a whole lot clearer if that's what he meant. But the problem with identifying this with the baptism of John, I actually, earlier in my life, was kind of a little bit drawn to this, thinking, well, maybe that's what he's talking about. Assuming devout people have gone and been baptized, but Nicodemus is a leader, ruler, maybe not wouldn't have done that. Hard to say. But would Jesus be requiring the baptism of John to enter the kingdom of heaven? What happens after that baptism is no longer available? So that doesn't seem like the best conclusion unless you're going to assume that in that time he would assume the baptism of John that would just trans, kind of transmit itself into the baptism of Christians later on and people would make that connection or that move, that leap forward, and they would just understand. But I don't think baptism fits here. There's a much, much better way to understand this. There's a liberal way, by the way, of getting baptism into this text. You simply say that Jesus didn't say this. John is writing Christian theology back into the gospel, and that Christians would read it that way. Well, as you think it through, you realize it doesn't make sense that he would be talking about Christian baptism to Nicodemus, and it doesn't make sense that he would be requiring the baptism of John. So what is he talking about? Not baptism. Another possibility is talking about physical birth. You know, what, when you think of physical birth and water, what's going to come to your mind, right? When Scotty was born... But this was the old days when they kept you in the hospital for a couple nights, the, the mother and child. When, when Sky, Sky was born in a sterile, tile-lined <laughs> room. He wasn't born in these wonderful rooms you get born in today. So we, you know, I was in the hospital a little while. We'd go visit Roberta and the baby. And I remember I was standing there one time at the door of our room. And it was real, right outside the room was, was the admitting desk to the maternity ward. And in comes this woman in a wheelchair... She, she, she kind of had the appearance of a of, of kind of backwoods woman. I don't say that disrespectfully, but she just had that kind of backwoodsy look about her. And she's in a wheelchair and they're wheeling her in. And the admitting nurse says to her, so why did you come in? 
And she, she goes, because my water bag broke. <laughs> Just like that. I, I had to turn away because it was so funny. <laughs> well, born of water. Born of water. That must be it. Physical birth, right? Actually, you read some ancient literature. Some have even suggested you go the other side of the equation, that water here is referring to semen. There are some references where that appears to be the case. But it, the problem with that reference is that those references is they're much later than this. I, again, was attracted to this view at one point in my study of this passage. But the problem you ultimately have to face is there's just simply no evidence to support the idea that anybody ever at this time talked about physical birth this way as being born of water, either side of the equation, the amniotic fluid or the semen. Nobody appears to have spoken of birth this way, so then it's not a good explanation for what John, uh, Jesus is saying here. The strongest clue we have, and it points us to the right answer, is what Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 9, or verse 10. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? What does that tell us? It tells us, Nicodemus you're an expert in the Hebrew Bible. You should understand this. He, here's the point where Jesus is a bit sharp with him. You being who you are, the esteemed doctor, professor, teacher of Israel, expert in the scriptures and the traditions, this is something you should understand. He's pointing to the fact, the answer to what, if we want to find an answer to what Jesus means, where should we be looking? We should be looking to the Old Testament. And that's exactly where we're going to find the answer. When you go back to the Old Testament, water is all over the place. Water signifies two things primarily. It speaks of two things. One is of cleansing and the other is of giving life. Ritual cleansing is required throughout the Old Testament. Ritual, I mean, as you're preparing for or you're going to be involved in temple worship, you need to be washed, you need to be cleansed. For example, the priests had to be bathed before their ordination. They also had to bathe before they went in to do their temple service. When the sacrificial animals were slaughtered, the parts of the animal were washed with water. And there are all kinds of things that would render you unclean if you touched some kinds of things. For example, if you touched a dead body, a member of your family passes away in your home, you're going to have to tend to them. Touching them is going to render you ceremonially unclean. And part of the process of being made clean again so that you are fit to go back to the temple for worship is that you've got to be washed. And all of this is, as we look back at it, we understand is symbolic. It isn't that the water itself removes any kind of moral impurity, but it pictures the need for cleansing. You understand the life-giving side of this very easily in the world of the Bible. This is a desert, essentially. Water is a precious commodity. I think about this when we go to, to Nagaland. They run out of water. Their wells go dry during the dry season. I just think about the fact, when we're in Nagaland, we do like any good Americans, we wash our hands before we eat, and then after we eat, we go wash them again because we've gotten them oily. And, and I was always very conscious, they must think, you Americans are wasting a lot of our water. You know? Now that we've got them a good well, I don't worry about it anymore. <laughs> it's, they, got, they actually have a spigot we can turn on, and it's going to keep coming. So I don't feel so bad, but, but it at least gives me a sense. In the Northwest, you never think about water. It's just taken for granted. But in a desert, this is precious and life-giving. 
And so Jesus is pointing to this Old Testament meaning of water which cleanses and gives life. Very famous passage of God himself being the fountain of living water. You know this one, many of you. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Life is found in me. And have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Cisterns were very, very important and they, uh, at this time in Israel. That's where water was collected to be used when it wasn't going to rain. And so water in the Old Testament signifies this. Now there's a key passage that brings all of this together. And it's found in the book of Ezekiel. It'll be on the screen. And this provides us with a clear understanding of what Jesus is saying Nicodemus should have understood. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Does that remind you of anything, you Bible scholars out there? Jeremiah, the new covenant, new heart. This is a kingdom passage, looking forward. That's doubly why. It's not, just a, it's not just a figure he should have understood from the Old Testament. It's also a look at what's going to happen when the kingdom comes. There's going to be this spiritual cleansing as God sprinkles water on them, spiritually speaking, and as he gives them a new heart and a new spirit. And how is all this going to happen? And I will put, verse 27, my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. This is going to be, this is, see, the, the obedience that he's talking about here, the godly, righteous living is going to flow out of a transformed heart. You don't get this. You don't try to live this way in order to be in. You live this way because you are in. And being in, you have been transformed. The motivation is intrinsic. It comes from the inside out what I met earlier when I was talking about you love this king, you worship this king, you willingly are under his reign and you serve him. That's what it means to enter the kingdom of God. Not to just, well, my religion tells me I have to. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that even he, this most religious and esteemed leaders of Israel, even he needs this work that Ezekiel is pointing to. He must be cleansed and given life. He must experience the sprinkling of this water that God speaks of and the new heart the Spirit will give. Let's compare a few things that Jesus said. Verse, or chapter 7 in the Gospel of John Another occasion, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Remember what he said to the woman at the well, chapter 4? We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. And of course, she wants to know about this living water. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water and this well you're drawing from is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We have a very, I think, clear statement in the book of Titus, of this symbolic meaning of water and spirit here. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by, here it is, the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is the big word for being born again. New birth, new life, brought back to life again, given a life we don't have. Dead in trespasses and sins, made alive. Regeneration. 
the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I'm tempted to think Paul is drawing this very verse, this very statement from his understanding of what Jesus said to Nicodemus. I can't prove it, but I'm tempted. Verse 6, the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, don't be astonished. You're, a, you're the teacher of Israel. You're the esteemed theologian and instructor of the people of God. And don't be astonished at what I'm saying to you. You ought to know these things. You must undergo a second birth. We're not told specifically, Jesus doesn't focus on it here, but we want to answer this question just briefly again this morning. How do we undergo this second birth? We're going to look backwards to a verse we've already covered, verses we've already looked at in chapter 1. If you'll just flip over there or they'll be on the screen. Chapter 1 in the prologue, verse 10, Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Well, that right there, right there is the heart of the, the gospel, and the heart of the mystery of this whole thing. A man, a real man, on this planet, was the creator visiting us. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born there's a birth that needs to take place. How does it take place? By receiving, by believing. Let me just say again this morning, what does it mean to receive? This language has been completely weakened, diluted, and trivialized in modern evangelicalism. To receive Christ has become something of an invitation call. Pray a prayer, ask him into your life or your heart. Now, please hear me carefully. That language, many, many people have met Christ genuinely through that kind of invitation. And I'm not talking about the altar call. I mean, just could be a Sunday school class, could be at the camp, it could be a private conversation. That kind of language was used in my youth, and I came to know Christ in a real and living way. But that language is incredibly dangerous because it teaches people that they can, they can make a prayer they can ask Jesus into their heart, but it does not teach them the true cost of the gospel, which is you must, you must give yourself completely to Christ. That's the missing ingredient. And so people can pray this without surrendering to Jesus. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me to be one of Jesus' disciples, not just pray a prayer. Receiving him, think about what it would mean. He came to his own. He came to the Jewish people. How did he come to them? He came to them as their Messiah, as their king. And when it says they did not receive him, what does it mean? It means they rejected his claim to be their king. We will not have this man to rule over us. To receive Christ is to receive him as your king, to recognize who he is. To believe in his name is not just to accept certain doctrines. You can be doctrinally perfect and not born again. To believe in his name is to understand, realize, recognize who he is and say, I must bow. If we, if we remain unbowed to Jesus, we have not yet recognized who he is. 
Just pray a prayer to receive this Jesus you were raised in the Sunday school to believe in is, can easily fall short of really realizing who we're talking about. And that's really what I, I, I find myself wanting to, to ask people. People who have said, well, I've received Jesus when I was a child. I prayed and asked him into my life. And I, I look at their life, and I, I don't say this out of judgmentalism. I just look at their life, and I, I have to, and my heart is asking, well, who do, who do you think this Jesus is? Now, there's an old debate, st- still current in some places. I, it's not current among us, I don't think. I don't hear it. It's called the Lordship Salvation Debate. Must Jesus be Lord in order to be Savior? Same question. Who do you think he is? If you're asking him to be your savior, who are you asking to be your savior? It's the king. And if you've realized that, then you have received him. Then you have believed in him in his name. How can we know that this new birth has happened? If you look at chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Now, we know more scientifically than they knew in those days. Don't worry about that. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a play on words here. The word spirit, in the original word, pneuma, from which we get pneumatic gun, pneumatic hammer. The word pneuma can be translated wind or breath, or spirit, depending on what you're talking about. And there's a play on words here. It's making a comparison between wind and the spirit. But it's the same word in Greek. And so there's this play going on in the words. But even though they, we know more scientifically about wind, and we can describe how it's generated and all those kinds of things, the point remains the same. Jesus is basically saying, look, the Holy Spirit is like wind in this way. You can't see him. You can't fully explain him and how he does what he does. But you can sure see his effects. When the Spirit has worked in a life and that life has been born again, you can see, just as you can see the tree blowing in the wind. You can see there's evidence, clear evidence of the Spirit, His presence, and His working. How do you, what are the evidences? How do you see the Spirit's working in somebody's life? What we're really talking about here is proof of life. (laughs) When a a baby is born, it cries. It moves. It wants to go to the breast. It wants to drink. It wants to suck. It, it needs nourishment. And if those things aren't present, there's grave alarm. And someone is saying, well, I've believed in Jesus. If you don't see signs of life, there's reason for grave concern. John himself gives us signs of life in his first epistle. And they boil down to three. I've referred to these before. Some of you will recall this. If you read the first letter of John, you will see that John emphasizes again and again these three marks of real life. And in that letter, he will often use the language, one who is born of God will do this or will do that. We're not going to look at all those possible verses today. I'm just going to point us to one passage. But here are the three. Believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Not just doctrinal knowledge in your mind, but real understanding of who he is. Number two, obedience or righteous living. Remember we talked about that internal motivation? We saw in Ezekiel when that new heart is planted in you by the Spirit of God. It's out of that that you obey. And live righteously. And then, thirdly, love for God and for God's people. There is this connection. There is this desire for the people of God. If you can't interest people in the things of God, 
If you can't interest people in the Word of God, if you can't interest people in having time with and fellowship and connecting with and belonging to the people of God, you can't interest them in the worshiping of God, then something is seriously amiss. Just want to point you to one passage in 1 John where a lot of these are brought together. Actually, they're all brought together and just kind of mixed together without listing or distinguishing. Chapter 5, verse 1 and following. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. There it is. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. See, there's that natural, because you've been born of God, you love him, you also love his kids. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. There's that other test of obedience. So you've got believing, obedience, and love. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is that that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And there you have it all, just tightly woven together. Correct doctrinal opinions are no sure sign of the second birth. It takes more than correct doctrinal opinions. Just a few more thoughts here and then we're finished. Be careful of the idea of a born-again experience. Be careful. Is this an experience? Of course it is. If the Spirit of God is transforming you, you have experienced something. But the question is, is it always going to be a felt experience? That is, I'm going to just get goosebumps or something. A big, big sense of, mm. well, yes, sometimes it is. I've talked with many people who have testified to this. I remember very plainly at this moment, years ago, a woman telling me, I was talking about these very kinds of things, about what happens in the life of somebody when they meet Jesus. And she came up to me and said, for me, it was night and day. It was like you had turned a light on in a dark room. Arjuna says this. About himself. He says he went to bed one night a Hindu and he woke up in the morning a Christian and he looked out the window and everything, the sun was brighter, the colors were sharper. I've been listening to the autobiography of, of Ravi Zacharias on, on, uh, you know, on my phone, basically. Audible.com. And, he, and he's talking about the same thing, how transformed he was, how immediately he knew the difference and his experience was very keen. But the, the difficulty is, and the caution is this, you, you also hear many people talking about the fact that they had a great born-again experience at one point somewhere in their life, and yet today they're not following Jesus at all. Bart Ehrman, a great New Testament scholar, his books are used in universities around the country and probably around the world. He testifies very, very clearly in the preface to some of his books how he underwent a very dramatic born-again experience as a teenager at a camp. And then he went to a Bible college, Moody Bible Institute, recognized evangelical school. The further he pursued his studies, the more he doubted, the more he doubted Scripture, the more he doubted the faith itself. And today he declares himself openly, though he is a New Testament scholar and professor at a recognized university in the United States, he will tell you clearly and plainly, I am an agnostic. My wife is a believing Episcopalian. He knows the difference. And yet he says he had this dramatic born-again experience. That's why I say be careful. Some people do have a dramatic and very real experience. Other people have no experience. I didn't. Maybe you didn't either. I know great believers who can say to you, I do not know the moment of my salvation. I cannot point back to a specific moment. And there's biblical grounds for this as well. I don't have time for that this morning. But you can see clearly all the signs of life and they love Christ and it's as genuine in them as it is in any one of us. So I just caution you against the idea that 
if I didn't experience something, am I missing it? Or I did experience something, therefore I got it? Look at the reality of your life. That's the real proof in the New Testament is does your life bear out your claim? Do you have the proofs of life in you? Well, as we said at the outset, Jesus' words to Nicodemus confront us all. What was true for this right, most reverend archbishop, doctor, senator is true for us all. You have to be born a second time. Have you? Please, please be sure. Let's pray.